What is behind the recent fall in oil prices worldwide? What are the signs the U.S. and its Western allies are desperate and losing their bid to control the Eurasian and Middle East region? In what ways does the collapse of the Soviet Union two decades ago resemble the looming collapse of the United States? For what reason would the U.S. collapse be even more devastating than that affecting Russia? What are the five stages of collapse, and what stages have the U.S. already reached? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we spend the entire show speaking with Russian-American analyst and writer Dmitry Orlov about the current geopolitical situation and about his writings on the subject of societal collapse. On today's program, lessons from the Soviet collapse: a conversation with Dmitry Orlov. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January twenty third, two thousand fifteen. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW ninety five point nine FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the center's website. GlobalResearch.ca. We can now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at PRN.FM. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. On January 13th in Volnavaha, Donetsk, 11 people were killed in what looked like a spectacular rocket attack. The governments of Ukraine and the United States immediately called for an investigation, while at the same time concluding that the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics were behind the attacks. Sergei Cherenko was the bus driver when that bus was attacked in Volnovaha. Yesterday, he gave an interview with Correspondent dot net and told exactly what happened and the direction he saw the rockets come from. According to his testimony, which is in line with other survivors, the Grad attack came from Ukrainian-controlled territory. That was from the article, "The East Ukraine Bus Disaster: The Propaganda War Goes Ballistic." Testimony of bus driver points to Kiev regime, by George Eliasson, posted January twenty-first. During the Israeli bombardment and shelling of the Gaza Strip last summer, an Israeli soldier approached a 74-year-old Palestinian woman, Galia Abu Rida, to give her a sip of water. He gave her the water, took a photo with her, and then he shot her in the head from a distance of one meter. He then watched as she bled to death. The Palestine Information Center reported. This is how Ahmad Kdeh. A journalist in Al Aqsa TV described the scene that he witnessed during the latest Israeli aggression. The spokesman of the Israeli army, Avishai Adrei, shared the photo of an Israeli soldier holding the bottle, water bottle and helping the old woman drink as an example of the quote-unquote humanity of the Israeli army towards the civilians in the Gaza Strip. That comes from the article: Israeli soldier gives water to blind elderly Palestinian woman for propaganda, then kills her. Reposted from Middle East Monitor, January twenty-first. 
Here's the situation in a nutshell. Kiev is sending poorly trained, fresh recruits into battle. They are shelling civilian areas, e.g. Gorlovka, but not providing cover, recon, or reinforcements to the men actually doing the fighting against the NAF. And the Novorossians are repelling whatever is thrown at them, taking out entire tank companies. Kiev's troops basically have two options, surrender or die. Now, Poroshenko is between a rock and a hard place. Continue sending out his troops as cannon fodder or negotiate a real ceasefire, in which case he will be at the mercy of the true patriots, i.e. Nazis, that want war, war, and more war. That comes from the article, Ukraine. Kiev lies to its own troops, sends them to be slaughtered. Novorossiya, clearly winning. By Harrison Cayley. Posted January 22nd, originally appearing at Sign of the Times. Now more than six months after the shootdown of a Malaysia Airlines plane over Ukraine, the refusal of the Obama administration to make public what intelligence evidence it has about who was responsible has created fertile ground for conspiracy theories to take root while reducing hopes for holding the guilty parties accountable. Given the U.S. government's surveillance capabilities from satellite and aerial photographs to telephonic and electronic intercepts to human sources, American intelligence surely has a good idea what happened on July 20, 17, 2014, when a Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 crashed in eastern Ukraine, killing all 298 people on board. I'm told that President Obama has received briefings on what this evidence shows and what U.S. intelligence analysts have concluded about the likely guilty parties, and that Obama may have shared some of those confidential findings with the Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak when they met on December 24th in Hawaii. But the U.S. government has gone largely silent on the subject after its initial rush to judgment pointing fingers at ethnic Russian rebels for allegedly firing the missile and at the Russian government for supposedly supplying a sophisticated Buk anti-aircraft battery capable of bringing down the aircraft at 33,000 feet. Since that early flurry of unverified charges only sniffets of U.S. and NATO intelligence findings have reached the public, and last October's interim Dutch investigative report on the cause of the crash indicated that Western governments had not shared crucial information. That comes from the article The Danger of an MH17 Cold Case by Robert Perry, posted January 21st, originally appearing at consortiumnews.com. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The standard belief among many Americans is that the former Soviet Union collapsed while the United States thrived because of a flaw in the former's economic system. 
Dmitry Orlov, however, would argue this is flawed thinking. He believes that a similar fate awaits the world's remaining superpower for largely the same reasons. Dmitry Orlov is a Russian-American engineer who was born in what is now St. Petersburg, Russia. Having traveled to his former homeland for extended periods before, during, and after the collapse, he is uniquely positioned to offer perspectives on the collapse of what has been called the evil empire and on how that collapse can inform the scenario facing the U.S. He has worked in many fields, including high-energy physics research, e-commerce, and internet security. Recently, Dmitri has been experimenting with off-grid living and renewable energy by giving up his house and car. Dmitri Orlov has written two books, Reinventing Collapse, The Soviet Experience, and American Prospects, as well as The Five Stages of Collapse, Survivor's Toolkit. Mr. Orlov is also the author of the blog ClubOrlov.com and a much sought-after geopolitical analyst. He spoke to the Global Research NewsHour recently by phone. Dimitri, maybe we should just start with uh, one of your most uh, recent posts uh, from your uh, blog uh, called Whiplash, and it deals with the subject of uh, the uh, the pricing of oil and how it's gone from a very from record highs to uh, drop to down around forty five dollars a barrel. Um, there's been some speculation about uh, whether this is sort of like a replay of the uh, back in the mid 1980s when we saw a further price drop just before uh, you know, in the mid 1980s just before the uh, the Soviet Union collapsed and this is being a, a deliberate action basically an attack on uh, the Soviet Union uh, I'm wondering because of the the, the current geopolitical climate with uh, the, this sort of a new cold war, uh, that seems to have been brewing uh, since uh, over the course of the last several months. Do you see this as being a, a deliberately uh, um, generated act, instigated act by the United States, or is this some sort of a um, interesting happenstance? How, how's your, what's your take on that? Well, first of all, comparing the Soviet Union to Russia is a, a really good way to illustrate one's ignorance. There are a lot of uh, commentators and analysts and experts in the in the West who will actually hold out on, you know, national television and use the word use the use the term Soviet Union until somebody corrects them. They're sort of uh, stuck in the mists of time. But comparing the Soviet Union to Russia is a very very silly mistake to make. There is no grounds for comparison. The other thing is that comparing the situation with oil back in the late 80s to what's happening now is also a very grave mistake because back in the late 80s, Prudhoe Bay in Alaska and the North Sea just went on stream. And um, those, those, are, those were very large oil provinces um, that are now more or less tapped out. They're played out. And there are really no new major sources of oil that is sufficiently cheap to sustain an industrial civilization. Yes, there are tar sands, there's fracked oil from shale, but at prices that basically cause what's called demand destruction. And the reason there is a bit of an oil glut right now is that a lot of the economies around the world that are supposed to be growing are not growing at all. In fact, they're shrinking 
if you look at them in dollar terms, um, to the tune of a few trillion worth of GDP being destroyed um, every few months. And that is the result of demand destruction. That, that's why we have very low oil prices. Now, as far as the attack on Russia, yes, the United States is becoming increasingly desperate. They realize that they only have a few months of uh, this very high shale oil production left. After that, the shale oil companies are going to be going bankrupt, and there will be no resumption in drilling because all the sweet spots have already been drilled out, and the whole thing is, you know, is turning out to be a financial swindle. Um, and and um, so what they're trying to do now is try to topple as many um, of the uh, governments around the world of the oil-producing countries that are currently not under their political and military domination. And there's just three of them, Venezuela, Iran, and Russia. So maybe they'll get Venezuela this time. They've tried to uh, uh, overthrow the government in Venezuela on numerous occasions, never successfully. Uh, I doubt that they'll get Iran, and they definitely won't get Russia. So this is just desperation. Mm. Desperation in in terms of their uh, like the the last uh, efforts to to control former um, well former colonies, if you will. I mean, in the sense of uh, or, or competitors. Well, they're not, they're neither colonies nor competitors. They're just basically countries that refuse to be uh, pumped out by by Western oil companies with nothing left over for the people in those countries. Mm -hmm. your typical pattern. Uh, Iran has fought that off quite a long time ago. Russia has fought that off during the late 90s. Mm -hmm. and, and Venezuela, you know, is, is managing, although they do need a lot of help from, uh, from the outside because their oil doesn't flow on, until it's upgraded and the technology for that comes from outside Venezuela. Yeah. Now, um, like, we're basically... I mean, you, you you talked about peak oil, and, and that's a, like a major uh, part of your analysis of, of how um, you know, of the collapse that's uh, basically uh, in 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 effect. It seems to me um, because basically we've like all the low hanging fruit, if you will, that the, the all the, the the conventional oil sources we've gotten about as much as we possibly could, and so it's only in that. In that climate, that uh, you find like uh, the heavy oil from Venezuela, shale oil, um, and of course the Canadian tar sands being viable. So if That's, it, yeah, yeah. So if that being the case, then this uh, low, um, this low price of oil. That's going to be a very temporary thing. We're going to see it shooting up at some point, uh, not to just as soon as the, the current resources, that what's currently available is burned up, right? Well, yes, that's, that's my whiplash thesis. You know, going back to, to what you said about peak oil, yes, that's, that's history now. Um, conventional oil production peaked in 2005, will never recover, will gradually decline, uh, all of those gigantic wells that you know that still are producing about 25 of all the output, they're slowly declining, and the only things that could make up for the loss of production and for whatever increase in consumption that is going to happen are all these things that are sort of oil but not exactly, 
like uh, you know bituminous sands or or um, asphalt uh, that that can't really be pumped. You know, it has to be steamed out of the ground, or a um, little bit of oil that can be fracked out of shale. Um, maybe something that can be uh, you know drilled out in the Arctic when you know you don't have ice flows. Um, things like that. And all of that is too expensive per barrel to maintain an industrial economy, which is a problem. And that's part of the reason why we don't show any economic growth, really, to speak of, except for a few financial bubbles that are still developing or popping. Um, and that's basically the world that we live in right now. So oil is in two different modes. There's price overshoot, which destroys demand because consumers can't afford that price. Businesses shut down, people go bankrupt, etc. And then demand uh, plummets, and with it, the price of oil plummets. And then you have the undershoot situation where oil producers no longer get the money they need to continue producing at the same rate, even at the reduced rate. And then you have a production shortfall, which causes the price to overshoot again, triggering another cycle of demand destruction. Mm -hmm. Now, how does the, uh, the the very fact that uh, the United States, uh, the, the U.S. greenback, has been for for decades the the, the world's petro currency, and that you needed uh, U.S. dollar priced, uh, you used have to have supplies of the U.S. dollar in order to purchase. Uh, this oil. So, you know, as things stand right now, what does this, what does peak oil and, and the, the current uh, situation with the, this uh, up and down of the the price of oil, how how is that going to affect the U.S. currency and the U.S. Uh, economic situation? Well, the best thing that countries around the world can do in terms of protecting their economies, protecting their populations from this whiplash phenomenon is to basically opt out of the oil market to the greatest extent possible, to demarketize oil by creating various types of arrangements with oil producers that are basically barter arrangements. So um, that has been happening to a very large extent in terms of gas with Russia, where Russia and China have signed you know, bilateral trade agreements where um, they're basically denominated in their own currencies in terms of their trade and with each other and completely circumvents any Western market structure. So that is really the way forward for a lot of countries is to basically opt out of this Western impo uh, imposed market model and, and um, basically tr strive for some kind of a steady state arrangement where you're exchanging products for energy. You're not exchanging money for energy. Mm. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, that uh, relationship between China and Russia and uh, China taking uh, gas from Russia. Um, yes. That, on the one hand, that, that does bode well in terms of uh, climate change, it seems to me, uh, that there would be less... Uh, natural gas, uh, which while it's still a, a greenhouse gas, the, you're not getting the same uh, uh, kinds of you know the, the same intense emissions as you were previously. Uh, that that seems to be a very positive spinoff. 
Well, yes, and that's part of the pressure behind it, because a lot of the younger people in China are very attuned to the environmental disaster. Mm. And um, one of the things that China can do without really harming its economy is convert from burning coal to burning natural gas, which is uh, three times less intensive in terms of carbon dioxide emissions than, than, than coal. And so they're doing this by constructing two gigantic pipelines running from Russia to China. And that is uh, happening. Those, those deals uh, have been signed and the construction has begun. Mm-hmm. And um, we just saw recently that uh, there was the, uh, the decision to, by the state company Gazprom to cut production that's going through uh, Ukraine to uh, EU countries. Instead, it's going to be routed through Turkey. Now, I'm wondering, uh, uh, there's also, uh, as I understand it, uh, overtures towards the European Union that, um, that that's encouraging them to break away from uh, what's called the Trans-Atlantic, uh, uh, or the TTIP, a, a Transatlantic Free Trade Agreement with the United States. Yes, Trade and Investment Partnership. Yes. Um, how, yes. How, how do you see that uh, situation playing out? I mean, it's it's putting the EU in an interesting uh, situation. I mean, currently, uh, you know, losing natural gas uh, would seem to be a, a very intense um, puts that, that in a very intense situation, uh, given a cold winter and whatnot. Well, yes. The, basically, um, Europe has. Absolutely no substitutes for Russian natural gas. Um, and they've, the EU has done everything it can to encourage Russia to shift away from selling natural gas to Europe and reorient itself to selling natural gas to, to Asia, which, by the way, is prepared to, to pay a much higher price for it. And, and so um, uh, Russia has done a number of things uh, to facilitate selling natural gas to, to the European Union. They built a, the Nord Stream pipeline, which goes through the Baltic directly to Germany. But because of um, pressure from the United States, among other things, and, and meddling of the bureaucrats in Brussels, Nord Stream is only being utilized at 50%. It cannot be utilized at capacity. And then they, they proposed building another pipeline through the Black Sea uh, to Bulgaria, and all the way to Austria, uh, the South Stream pipeline, but uh, and Gazprom was going to build it. They have the economies of scale for executing such projects. But the EU decided that um, certain rules should apply um, because uh, Gazprom is uh, a natural gas monopoly in Russia. That Gazprom has cannot be a majority st- uh, stakeholder in the project, and. Um, Gazprom was not interested in that deal, and, but since they already planned it out and they already had a ship uh, stacked with pipe ready to be welded together, ready to sail, that was costing them money just sitting there, they figured that they could build a pipeline to Turkey instead, and Turkey said yes, immediately, whereas the Bulgarians, who are part of the EU and beholden to the, the bureaucrats in Brussels, could not approve the deal at all. So now there's going to be a pipeline to Turkey, and the Russians will build it all the way to the Greek border and have told the Europeans that they can get their gas at the Greek border if they want. 
but that Gazprom will not help them beyond that point. So talk about the way collapse in the Soviet Union manifested itself. It's basically been presented to us as, you know, capitalism winning out over the uh, uh, you know the state, the you know, central planning model of the communists. And I, I was wondering if uh, you, you could just sort of clarify, well, what exactly was behind that collapse and um, – any insights you might have as to the, the, the timing of the collapse? Well, um, I, I was in Russia um, starting in uh, 89. Um, so I, I observed the, the Soviet collapse firsthand, and uh, I kept traveling back to Russia throughout the 90s. And around 96 uh, or 7 or so, um, it dawned on me that there, there are just huge similarities between the USSR, which by that time was long gone, and the, and, and the USA, that these were really just, uh, you know, the, the, the two poles of, uh, you know, a bipolar process, process that, you know, and the two poles kind of need each other, and, and once one goes away, the other one will go away as well for very similar reasons. So the reasons... Um, are pretty obvious. One of them is runaway military spending on a, a very large, expensive military that is incapable of victory. That is a very important point. You, you have to keep in mind that you know the Red Army couldn't prevail in Afghanistan and um, was just s- soaking up resources but not producing any results. And similarly, the American military, which is the most expensive military in the world, largest in terms of spending, but what have they won? You know, the, Afghanistan is, is reverting to Talibanistan. Uh, Iraq is now just a, um, a tiny Mesopotamian kin- kingdom because the rest of it is dominated by ISIS. Uh, regime change in Syria, you know, that didn't go very well either. Uh, Libya is in a state of civil war. There was just a, uh, an, a government overthrow in, in Yemen, um, where, you know, the, the Amer- America's partners got, got kicked out by, by some um, Shiite militants. And the list goes on and on like that. Ukraine is another example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically everything the United States touches turns to garbage, and no amount of military spending will fix that problem. Mm-hmm. And that is a big similarity. The other similarity is that, you know, both of these countries, the Soviet Union and the United States, were dominated by a relatively tiny, incredibly corrupt clique of, uh, um, of, of elitists who, uh, who basically ran the countries into the ground. And, you know, these elites were completely closed, unreformable, and not answerable to anyone. Um, th- those are just, you know, some highlights. You know, there, there are some others as well. Uh, but... I realize that both countries are heading in the same direction, and I think I'm still right. Yeah, and they both uh, pretty they they both rely on cheap energy. Yes, cheap energy was a big part of it, um, uh, and and um, uh, the United States did have a superior position because of the petrodollar and because of military control of uh, you know the kingdoms and um, around Saudi Arabia, centered on Saudi Arabia. 
So that bought it some time. But that time is now starting to run out. Um, and the, the other thing is that there is a huge similarity between the Soviet Union and the United States is that both of these countries were and are um, ideologically hamstrung. There's really no difference between being um, a communist zealot and being a capitalist zealot because you're still a zealot. Mm. And zealotry never pays off in the end. Even though their national myths are different. Well, it really doesn't matter. It's just mm -hmm. that if you rigidly adhere to an ideology and ignore the fact that it has stopped working, um, you know, the Americans, they can't respond in any way to the fact that most of the good jobs have been shipped overseas, you know, that the middle class is going away, that, you know, young people are earning degrees that saddle them with debt, but there are no jobs at the end. You know, all of those things. They can't really grasp the fact that everything they've built has stopped working because their ideology forbids them from doing it. So that's identical with what was going on in the Soviet Union. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. While you were in uh, Russia, did you notice anything, uh, any interesting uh, differences between uh, the way collapse manifested itself in the, the cities versus more rural areas in terms of the way people reacted to it and in terms of the way they experienced it? Uh, well, yes, I, I traveled all over the place. And, and uh, um, I, I think, uh, you know, the Soviet Union was, was pretty well set up to handle a collapse, uh, and I, I've written, like, the, my, my first book was all devoted to the subject of basically the Soviet Union's superior collapse preparedness. It was really set up to ride it out because um, it wasn't very highly financialized. People could survive without an income. People grew a lot of their own food. Um, nobody owned their place of residence. Nobody paid rent and utilities were nominal. So everybody kept a roof over their heads. Uh, all of the social institutions were were public, so there were there were no private schools or kindergartens or hospitals or any of that stuff. And so people continued to receive an education, medical care, um, things like that, even though salaries weren't being paid for months on end. But people somehow found a way to survive. Um, the the food distribution schemes were also not based on. On, on market mechanisms, so they just continued to, to function in, in spite of the fact that the economy went away. Now, nothing like that exists in the United States or in Canada to a large extent. So once your money is worthless and once the economy is at a standstill, everybody's lives are pretty much in danger from that point on. Mm. Yeah, and what we're, we have this phenomenon right now um, – of, of austerity in, in the wake of uh, failing economies. 
Um, interestingly enough, we've got a, a big election coming up in Greece in which the this anti-austerity party uh, seems poised to win, um, which is an interesting development. But the, the concept of austerity in Russia, um, that was uh, what, what kind of a uh, – um, what, what are the sensibilities around that kind of approach uh, historically? Uh, well, basically, there was a period of austerity, and um, it didn't last very long. Now, Russia has a, a fairly uh, healthy public sector, and, and uh, the people are relatively well taken care of. But um, during the, the early 90s, um, uh, a bunch of uh, consultants from, from the states went over there and pushed rapid privatization schemes and... and uh, big cuts in public spending, um, elimination of, of subsidies for, for various products that people uh, needed access to in order to survive. And um, and the, the wave of privatization was basically all criminal. Uh, it was criminal privatization. It was basically theft of public property at a very large scale. Um, and and uh, the, the austerity didn't last very long. Um, the... the uh, you know the the economists who who pushed these things, people like Jeffrey Sachs, were you know have been completely discredited. You know in Russia, if not in the United States, which doesn't pay attention to such things. Um, and and everybody understands that austerity does not work ever. It has never worked. And the reason to impose austerity is actually rather different from the rationale being offered. Basically, it's a way to destroy a society. Because from the, from the point of view of the bankers who impose austerity and the people in, in the IMF, the fact that there are people living in a country is an inconvenience. So if they actually all died of hunger, that would make the country worth more on paper because they, they wouldn't have to feed those people then. So the worse you make it for the people in the country, the better it is for them, the easier it is then to privatize everything in the country and extract everything from it. And... Uh, what, what the IMF tries to accomplish when they impose austerity is something that's called the IMF riot. It's where the people themselves rise up and destroy their country so that you don't even need to have a military invasion because the people are doing it themselves. So that, that's like the, 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 perfect, the perfect result for them. And I don't think it's going to happen in Greece. I think the Greeks have it together enough to fight it off, just like the Russians fought it off. Um, another uh, example of, of going against that particular uh, globalization flow, it seems to me, is Iceland. Uh, can you talk about how they kind of broke through from or broke away from that uh, aus the austerity uh, consensus? Oh yes, the, the Icelanders. Um, well, they 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 uh, are experiencing hard times. Um, they're, they're in a great deal of debt. Um, they they do they did do some uniquely uh, good things. Uh, you know, instead of bailing out their banks, they, they actually, uh, um, you know, in, insisted that laws be followed and actually imprisoned certain bankers uh, for breaking the law. Um, and, um, you know, that makes them very brave. Uh, they're doing some other things that I think are right, such as, uh, you know, basically they're, they're deciding not to join the European Union. 
So European Union expansion is now done. It's over. If if Greece decides to leave the European Union, then it's it's really over. Um, but yes, Iceland is is um, you know an interesting country. It's the size of a small town, really. But but as a country, it's rather interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, now an- another aspect of this, it seems to me, is the direction of of, of food production. I mean, food, of, of course, is critical for survival and what we've seen in the development of, of the United States and, and Russia is that move towards more industrialized uh, uh, agriculture which is very energy intensive now how do you see you know comparing the the Russian what what's been taking place in Russia versus what we see taking place in the United States uh, how, how are we seeing um, adaptation to uh, collapse manifesting well, it's really, it, it has to do, in Russia, you know, Russia is one of the major grain importers. Uh, the Soviet Union was a, uh, grain exporters. The Soviet Union was a major grain importer from the, from the U.S., from Canada. Now Russia feeds most of the Middle East. A lot of the wheat for the couscous comes from Russia. And uh, orders for Russian wheat are just going through the roof because the ruble has, has gone down in value. Um so Russian agriculture has recovered to a very large extent, and it's really the the amount of production that Russia will have is very much determined by, um, you know, the, the situation in, 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 with foreign currencies. Um, just because the ruble went down from something like, uh, let's say, uh, 35 to maybe 45 or 50 a dollar, um, just that is probably going to double wheat production because they're just going to plant more fields that were marginal before, but now they'll be profitable. So Russia can pretty much grow arbitrary amounts of food. They can definitely feed their own population without any problem. Um, and um, the the climate in Russia is improving for growing food. Uh, the The belts where food can be grown profitably are shifting further and further north because the climate is warming. Now, in the United States, there are a few other things going on, such as uh, incredible drought in California, which produces most of the produce, and also uh, arid conditions across the the, uh, the Midwest and, and, and the, the arid parts of the West. So uh, a lot of those places... Uh, and also the, the depletion of the underground aquifer, uh, the Ogallala aquifer. So moving forward, the United States won't be growing that much food. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's become clear already. So it, at some point, the U.S. will become a, a food importer. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that, that seems to be very likely. In terms of food production, uh, what we're seeing is uh, topsoil is uh, becoming uh, – more, we're losing topsoil every year and becoming therefore more and more reliant on fossil fuel-based fertilizers for maintain just holding the, the production levels uh, at, at the same amount. So how, how is that going to uh, manifest in the, uh, in, in the scheme of collapse? That is one of the things that will probably um, cause a, a large reduction in the human population of the planet over the course of this century, uh, because oil, uh, oil is one of the things that drives agriculture, agricultural machinery, but the other thing that drives it is the availability um, 
of chemical fertilizer, phosphate is, is a major one. Uh, basically, once you stop growing food the way it's meant to be grown, which is basically having a, a healthy ecosystem with lots of different things growing together, and shift to monocultures, uh, basically lots of wheat or lots of barley or lots of corn, um, to the exclusion of everything else, and then once you get into a pattern of basically spiking, spiking the dirt with chemicals in order to get the biggest yield you can, um, then you're basically in a spiral where eventually the whole thing crashes. And, and it could crash rather suddenly because we have just a few hybrids that dominate a lot of agricultural production. There have been a lot of experiments, some in Canada, of uh, no-till um, uh, ways of, of uh, growing uh, grains where you basically you, you leave the straw on the ground for the next year, uh, allowing the, the soil to recover. Uh, there are lots of other experiments, such as creating what's called biochar and drilling it into the ground, and um, that creates a, a much uh, much richer soil, it creates soil humus, and there have been some positive results where it is possible to uh, restore soil and maintain, maintain its natural productivity without chemicals by using such techniques. But, um, you know, the, the adoption of those things runs into... Uh, market practices that uh, make it almost impossible to, to, to really shift to that way of doing things. Mm. Now, um, in your second book, you talk about the five stages of collapse, evoking the uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, five stages of grief, it seems. Um, you talk about financial collapse. You talk about commercial collapse, uh, political collapse, social collapse, and finally, cultural collapse. Where would you see um, the United States currently in terms of where they at, are at in terms of that, those five stages? Yes, well, calling them stages does work because uh, um, they could theoretically work as a sequence. Uh, uh, so you have a financial collapse that causes um, a commercial collapse, industry stops working uh, because banks don't lend. And, and then that causes a political collapse because without industry, you don't have a tax base, so the governments go bankrupt and can't get anything done. And then because all of the uh, social supports that the government provides are, are withdrawn, um, you know, society deteriorates to a point where you have social collapse, and then once you don't have society, then people stop resembling people after a while, and you have cultural collapse and just, uh, you know, roving bands of semi-feral humans. Um, so you, you could t picture it as a cascade, or you can look at each uh, each of the stages as a facet of an unfolding collapse and see how far along each one is. So in terms of financial collapse, you can see that, you know, basically uh, there, there was a financial collapse in 2007 and 2008, uh, and none of the systemic problems that caused that collapse have been solved. Instead, there has been a very extensive um, market manipulation, financial market manipulation by central banks and governments and to basically paper over the problem. And that has worked up until now, but I don't think it'll work very far into this year even. And then financial collapse will resume. Mm. Um, they're not really addressing of, uh, the, the root causes. Collapse. Yeah, they're not. They're not interested in root causes because that would force them to re-examine their ideology their free market liberalism, 
which they can't do, just like the communists in the Soviet Union couldn't re-examine the, the, their communist dogma. They're, they're hamstrung. And, and so they will just play it out. They will run out the clock. Mm-hmm. And as far as commercial collapse, well, you have a lot of uh, business shutdowns and a lot of layoffs that, that are happening right now. Uh, there, there are a lot of dead towns all through through the United States. Um, a lot of a lot of shops, big stores, malls have shut down. Uh, the unemployment rate is uh, being faked. If you count all the people who have who are considered to have left the you know the the, the job market, it turns out that the unemployment rate is something like 25% of the population. You know, the, 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 the real statistic to look at is labor participation rate, which is at an all-time low. And, and so, and that in turn, in, in turn causes uh, social collapse because, you know, parents can no longer f- put food on the table to feed their kids. You know, the, the number of uh, high school students in the U.S. living in poverty has just exceeded 50%. Um, and uh, in terms of political collapse, there have been a, uh, there has been a study at, uh, done at Yale last year, which basically was a, you know, a statistical study trying to figure out where, whether what people think, the, pub, the public opinion, the opinions that people have, whether those have any impact on public policy, which is what you would expect in a democracy. And they've determined that the, the net effect is, is nil. It's non-existent. So there's absolutely no reason to call the United States a democracy. It doesn't pencil out that way. It is not a democracy. It's, it's an oligarchy. And so that brings it to the brink of political collapse. Um, now, in terms of social collapse, well, a lot of people over the years have been deprived in many different ways, you know, especially the minorities in the United States. So you can say that cultural collapse has run its course in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that uh, we've, uh, like, over time, uh, we've seen so many uh, communities more and more dependent on on different, um, you know, agencies or different, uh, you know, relying more and more on you know, the, the the products of our consumer society, and they've been torn away from one another, and that seems to me uh, to be a bad omen. Uh, as we move forward, if we don't have those uh, that connectivity with uh, e- even within families, well, yes. Uh, basically, the way it works is this: One, once you're done exploiting a certain population for whatever it is you exploit them for, uh, picking cotton or uh, you know manufacturing industrial machinery or whatever it is that you needed them to do, you've replaced them with robots or you, uh, you've offshored their job to to China because it's cheaper, whatever. Then you have this population left over. So the question is, what do you do with it? Well, basically, it's a one-two thing, one-two punch. First, you get them dependent on various types of government programs so they can't survive without them. Then you withdraw those programs, and they can no longer uh, survive at all without resorting to things like crime or drug dealing or whatever else. And then you imprison them for that, breaking up their families. And if you do that for a couple of generations, then there's very little of them left. And that's, that's been happening in a lot of communities in the United States. That's been the pattern.
how does the uh, the specter of the underground economy uh, as as societies collapse? Uh, what does there a specific role that the the underground economy organized you know, gangsters, mafia, what have you? Did do they is it like all, almost organically responding in, in some way to these uh, collapsing institutions, governmental and otherwise? Well, yes, I, I've made the prediction a while ago that as the, the the U.S. government ceases to function, it will be replaced by the narco mafias, who will diversify into every other kind of endeavor, because they're very well positioned to thrive in that sort of disturbed environment. Mm-hmm. As they did in the uh, in in Russia. Uh, yes, in Russia there was a period of time when uh, basically the, the whole place was mafia run. And uh, and the government was just completely incapable of getting anything done. But then the government kind of roared back to life and reabsorbed all of these uh, protection racket type functions into itself and outcompeted the mafia. Uh, you know, lowered, the, dropped the prices to where the mafia couldn't compete, um, and and uh, then impo- reimposed the rule of law. And that happened pretty much after Putin came to power, but it started before that. As we're looking in the, in the current situation, particularly uh, Ukraine, uh, that does seem to be a major flashpoint right now. And uh, you know, one wonders if the situation is where we're you know we're seeing uh, you know increasing tensions. Uh, uh, the Western countries, the United States and, and Canada, seem to be doing wanting to do everything they can to uh, further. Um, you know, get, getting more weapons to the Ukraine, uh, to into Ukraine to to fight off the uh, the threat, as they call it, from uh, from Russia, and, and basically doing everything to to alienate Russia and the whole situation. And uh, R- Russia's response has been kind of interesting in that it's not, uh, it, it's basically it's you know sort of playing these uh, almost a kind of a, a chess game, you know, just forming new alliances and just maybe kind of quietly walking away from, uh, uh, you know, people, you know, the, uh, the countries that are, are maybe using this kind of uh, provocative language. Um, do you see uh, this situation resolving uh, in, a, in, in a peaceful way? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know uh when this this crisis is going to be over, because now you've had about 20 years of uh, uh, Ukrainians who've, who've pretty much been, you know, brainwashed um, by by the United States to a large extent by by Western NGOs in, into hating all things Russian, which is really bizarre in a country where something like 90% of everything was done in in Russian. Um, you know, and Ukrainian is just basically, a, um, you know, kind of a village dialect. It's not meant for serious business. Um, you know, even Ukrainian writers, the most fav- famous one was, was Gogol, you know, Nikolai Gogol, who, um, who wrote in Russian and, and was completely dead set against using Ukrainian as a literary language. He thought it was basically, a, you know, a very nice village dialect. Um, and that's coming from a Ukrainian, the best known one in the world. Um, so once you manipulate a society to that point, then all sorts of things become possible, such as feeding them weapons and leading them to the slaughter. So 
these completely demoralized, you know, underfed, undertrained Ukrainian uh, kids who just got drafted are being sent, and they're basically fighting against people who are protecting their turf, who are not Ukrainians, because most of, Ukra- most of the Ukraine is actually Russia. It's Russian territory. It was given to Ukraine by Lenin, for whatever reason. So basically, they're, they're facing off against these well-armed, well-trained, uh, seasoned veterans who are fighting for their home turf, just like they defended it against the Germans, except now they're defending it against these hapless Ukrainian draftees. And the, the slaughter that's resulting from that is just absolutely appalling. And the only way you can make sense of it is that the, 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 you know, the bastards in power in Kiev now and their Western handlers, they don't need the Ukrainian population. They just want them all to die. So they're doing whatever they can to get as many of them killed as possible, as quickly as possible. Mm. And that's really what's happening. You, you talk in one of your past uh, blogs about the, the called the Imperial Collapse Playbook, where essentially uh, uh, you, uh, if you can't win a situation, you will basically kind of poison the well or, or just leave, a, uh, leave it wounded. So hence, uh, after the British failed to uh, conquer the American colonies, they basically used soft power to... Uh, empower the uh, the confederate states leading to the uh, u.s civil war and you can go up through history uh, you know creation of pakistan uh, you know after they couldn't control india and uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering if that same the same playbook is, is what you're talking about in terms of what's happening in ukraine they, they can't uh they, they can't hold it so they're just going to whether it's Ukraine or ISIS, they're just going to uh, poison the well, salt the earth, what have you, so that you know these two you know, rival powers are just not going to be able to, uh, or the United States is just not going to be able to. Uh, if if they can't have it, neither can anybody else. I mean, well, what is your is that your kind of your in uh, your, your thinking in terms of this? Uh, well, that was basically the move because you know suddenly. Last spring, or you know, late in uh, 2013, the the Ukrainian government was actually negotiating simultaneously with the European Union and and the Russian Federation, trying to come to some sort of accommodation, uh, realizing that it is stuck in the middle, it can't make it as part of the EU, and it can't survive without Russia. And the Americans were absolutely you know, frightened that the entire investment in Ukraine and destabilizing it politically and, you know, corrupting it politically would be washed away because suddenly, you know, peace and and harmony would erupt and there would no longer be conflict between, you know, all of these European countries. And and then the United States would just be dealt out of the whole situation. So they couldn't countenance that. And so they... They hired some snipers. They killed a bunch of demonstrators and police at the same time. Uh, they, they caused, a, you know, basically a, a military coup, uh, took over the government in an unconstitutional manner, and then did everything they can to provoke a military confrontation between the Ukraine and the Russian part of Ukraine. Hmm. Okay, um, so... I'm wondering now, um, you, you see collapse as essentially 
inevitable. I'm wondering, uh, is this going to be, are, are we going to go out uh, in a, a blaze of nuclear glory, or is it just going to be, uh, you know, the United States and, and other countries just, you know, contracting down to the point where uh, you, you just have smaller enclaves uh, peaceably looking after each other? Uh, how are you, how, what's the situation going to be looking like uh, in the next 10, 20 years? Well, I, I think it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, a, a, an economic slide for, for North America and for Western Europe. And uh, it's going to be uncertain times for the rest of the world, but um, many parts of it, I think Russia included, have a, a reasonably prosperous future at this point because they have worked hard to fix a lot of the problems they, they previously had. And the way they do things now is so dramatically better than it has ever been before. So they do stand a chance. Uh, but I, I think that, that the United States will basically fade as, as a world power. And I think that you know Canada desperately holding on to the, the coattails of of, of the United States and having this Me Too mentality with things like the situation in the Ukraine, that's not going to help the Canadians at all. The Canadians used to be very respected around the world, you know, as being fair and neutral. But, you know, this latest round of, uh, you know, shipping weapons to Ukraine so they can get themselves killed, you know, that's not really very conducive to that used to be that you can travel the world with a Canadian, you know, a maple leaf on your backpack and, you know, nobody would ever touch you. But I think that that's going away. <laughs> yeah. And uh, probably getting the, getting the, the, the opposite uh, reaction. I hear you. Well, uh, Dmitry Orlov, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, being able to speak with you on these issues. Uh, I hope we can speak again. Uh, uh, and, and I really appreciate your analysis. Um, thank you very much for joining well, us. Thank you. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Dmitry Orlov. Uh, he is a uh, Russian-American engineer. He is the author of ClubOrlov.com, the blog, and the author of Reinventing Collapse and F- the Five Stages of Collapse by New Society Publishers. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.